This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Okay, podcast. Episode 49 with me, Dan the Fitness Man. Today we're bringing on a badass blue collar dude you might have heard of, you might not have, but you should know about him. He kills things with his archery equipment year in and year out for over a decade. Dude's one of the most consistent archery harvesters I know of and wealth of knowledge. So we're going to bring him on and talk elk hunting, of course. We're also going to talk about family and faith and finances and discipline and all those sexy topics. You guys know, but just a quick reminder, Elk Shape is brought to you by delayed gratification, hard work, discipline, and being accountable for your actions. Thank you, sponsors. And if you want to support the cast, you know what to do. Check out ElkShape.com. There's some things in the store you can check out. Our YouTube series coming up on the Elk Shape YouTube channel. December 15th, we're dropping 10 episodes for the Nevada hunt this uh, couple months ago. Excited to share that with you guys. A lot of ups, a lot of downs. And then uh, what else is going on? Oh, yeah, that Elk Shape Camp thing sold out. Pretty stoked about that. I think I want to do at least one more here in Spokane in 2019 if it works out. If not, we're taking on the road in 2020. So I'm going to start planning now. So if you know of a facility where we can train and we can shoot or a gym or a CrossFit gym or just a box with an awesome archery shop or 3D archery course nearby, that's all we need. I'll come to your town and we'll get people signed up and get them better. I might bring a few homeboys with me to help on the elk calling and backpacking. Um, Maybe it'll be Ryan Lampers and Dirk Durham. I don't know. Maybe it'll be, I'll call Corey Jacobson. Who do you guys want me to call? We'll bring them. But, uh, all kidding aside, Elk Shape Camp, I'm super stoked about. And this podcast, I'm super stoked about. I appreciate all you guys listening. It's very humbling to see some of the download numbers. I know that we're reaching some people that are just like me, that trying to balance life and work hard for our goals and work hard for our family and work hard in the Elk Woods. And that's what it's all about. So enjoy this episode. Elk Shape Podcast, episode 4-9 with me, Dan the Fitness Man. We're bringing on Matt Bateman. And he is from Utah. He works for Grim Reaper Broadheads. Uh, the dude is a mule deer slayer, but but he's actually pretty well versed in a lot of different species. Uh, blue collar guy, just like the rest of us in this tribe. And we're super lucky to have him on. So Matt, how are you doing, man? Dan, I'm doing awesome, man. Thanks for having me on. Um, doing doing good. Just uh, just grinding away. So, yeah, this time of year, what do you guys look like uh, there at Grim Reapers uh, HQ? As far as leading into the holidays, you got a bunch of shows coming up. How much works in front of you? Right. Yeah, we you know we just kind of on the tail end of of shipping product out. We we kind of have a super busy window from July till early November where it's just crazy getting broadhead shipped out the door across the country um and then we that kind of tells off and now we're just switching gears to getting getting ready for for the upcoming show season would kick off in January with with the big archery trade show 
Um, so we're just getting, I mean, I got a pile of work to do, just getting pricing structures put together and, and new products ready to go and, and stuff ready to ship out to our booth and, and all that. So we're just kind of switch gears from shipping product from last year to, to now prepping for a, a big 2019 and getting ready to go out to the show season and, and see everyone and, and, uh, kick off the new year. So that's awesome. So how long have you been working for Grim Reaper? Uh, I've been, um, my history with Grim Reaper goes way back. Actually, I've been employed full time here at Grim Reaper for almost 12 years, um, as their in-house sales manager. Uh, God, I tied in with Grim Reaper a couple years prior to that, kind of on a, a, a staff shooter level shooting their broadheads. Um, and then, uh, that transitioned in, uh, us, us talking about uh, a job here and uh, i've been here for uh this july will be 12 years that's i'm the on the longest yeah i'm the longest tenured employee here at the company so i think i met you back man maybe 2007 or 8 at archer trade show and i think i just stumbled into your booth but uh, i remember meeting you and we've just always stayed in touch and i do think you're one of the few guys i know and I really mean this, that I can bank on getting it done with a bow year in and year out. So one of the things I want to talk about is continuity and how you consistently, what are you doing to literally, I can guarantee your freezer is full every year, not to add pressure or anything, but I literally can just <laughs> guarantee that you're going to get it done. We'll talk about that, but let's take a step back for a second. I didn't always shoot Grim Reapers, and this isn't a commercial, people know me. I'm not about that kind of fluff, but we're going to talk about Grim Reapers for a second. Like I switched. I was a trophy taker guy. Like I was shooting Shuttle T before trophy taker even owned that company uh, back when it was made in California. Once Dan Evans sold it, I I was really disappointed in what I was getting, seeing in the product. And so I called you. And I told you, hey, Matt, I'm not going to shoot mechanical broadheads at Elk. I can't even do that in Idaho legally. Uh, What do you guys got for a fixed head? And you were so cool, dude. You sent me like a bunch of prototypes. And this was a couple years ago. And I shot them. And I was like literally cut my finger, opened them out of the package. Never had that happen (laughs) before. So made the switch to you guys. Haven't looked back. That's not a shameless plug. That's just me. That just is what it is. Right, right. But what is it about you guys? You guys are a small company, but you haven't sold out. What is it about Grim Reaper that makes you guys unique? I feel like this is probably the most appropriate time to talk about that. Right, right. You bet. Yeah, I know. Our history goes way back, and and you're always a guy that, hey, I'd love to have Dan shoot Grim Reaper, but but I get it. There's a lot of good companies, a lot of good products out there, and and, uh, we all – you know, I can't say that we're the only broadhead company in the world that has good stuff, but uh, we we just uh, what makes Grim Reaper different. Um, you you kind of hit on it. We're truly there. There's very few broadhead companies or companies in general left in the archer industry that are still under a riddle original ownership um, that haven't been bought up or sold out or gone gone elsewhere um and and my personal opinion there is what really sets us apart is how you meet these guys that invented the product or or put their heart and soul into to getting a product off the ground and and they're passionate about it they you know they won't compromise on the quality for for cheap um and you lose that a lot of times when when companies start passing hands and especially in my opinion when stuff starts going overseas so that's one really unique thing to grim reaper there's really hardly any broadhead companies left in this industry that are independently owned under original ownership the the owner of grim reaper jay lichty he started the company 20 years ago literally out of his parents basement from the ground up you know blood sweat and tears and 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 we've grown into what we are today. It's been a grind. It's been a struggle. I mean, the change just in the last 12 years since I've been here has been tremendous. Um, now we're one of the most reputable, respected broadhead companies in the industry uh, that's still under original ownership, 100% made in America. We won't sacrifice quality. We're still passionate about the, the product. You can call Grim Raper and talk to me personally, who truthfully, and it's not tooting my own horn, but there is nobody in the world 
that knows the in and outs of Grim Reaper broadheads better than me. And you don't get that with a lot of other companies anymore these days. You can't actually call and talk to somebody that has the background, the history, that knows anything and everything about every model, every made, and can answer your questions and help you, direct you in the right direction. Um, and that's what you get with us. So, you know, I mean, and, and our dealers love that. Our customers, our loyal customers love that. And we, we, we back it. We appreciate those that have been with us forever. We appreciate those that are jumping on board now. And that's really what sets us apart is like, it's just like hunting. If you have that passion and that drive to be successful and and care about what you do, you're going to be better at it than if you're just doing it to make a buck, you know? So, um, that's what sets us apart, the passion and drive we have and, and still, you know, like I said, being under original ownership and, and we have this small company feel this, uh, you know, we're all, diehard dedicated hunters and, and dedicated to the quality of the product etc and use it ourselves and really put it through the ringer so it really sets us apart I, I completely agree not that i've been in, in the industry that long probably not as long as you but quite a while i've seen some changes and um <clears throat> it's just nice to know that you guys are the same ownership and like you are available you chat with everybody and uh it's it's pretty cool it's unique and uh, I like the mom pop shops, man. I, I really do. Like, I believe in that brand. And so keep up the good work. Now, let's switch gears. I want to get a little background on you, man. Like, you are, well, from what I know, you got a family, you work a lot of hours, you still get some time to hunt. Archery is your number one thing that you do when you're not with your family and you're not working. Give us a snapshot of the end of life and what you got going on behind the scenes. Yeah, you bet. Yeah, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I'm sure as you you've seen and and we've talked, I'm, I'm super passionate about archery and and bow hunting. But man, family's number one for me and always is. And and uh, I have a beautiful wife and three little kids. Uh, I've got uh, my oldest uh, boy just turned 12 last week, so actually finishing his hunter safety up tomorrow morning in Utah. You have to be 12 to hunt big games. So yeah, he and I, yeah, he and I are are. Uh, just finishing up his field day in the morning tomorrow morning is shooting and stuff and and uh so i'm gonna have a a new hunting partner joining the ranks this year and then i've got a a little girl that's uh five um she just started kindergarten a little tiny thing but she's a a firecracker and she owns me for sure um then Then we have a, a little baby boy that just turned one last week. So um, that's my crew. Uh, man, they keep me hopping. And, and like you said, it's 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 just always this uh, juggling act of uh, balancing family. Um, you know, I'm a religious guy too, ba- balancing family and, and church and and my passion for the outdoors and hunting and, and trying to be, be a good good uh, employee and work hard here at grim raper and get us where we want to go so yeah man there's not a lot of downtime it's just just go 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 and i love it that's that's me i'm not a guy that can sit around much i, I like to be doing things inactive i start my day every day early at 5 a.m that's that's my only time i can get in my exercise routine and so i start early and and just uh in the day putting the kids to bed and and hitting the sack so it's just a uh, i wouldn't change it for anything my you know that i still get out and hunt a lot but uh you know i my uh i'd say those opportunities are harder to come by sometimes especially long stretches but it really makes me value and appreciate the days i do get on the mountain and and i think i make more of it because of that you know i know you know like sometimes my time's limited or or i can't just come back tomorrow so try and make it all count yeah that's true getting it done in the morning is something we've talked about on here before i'm just going to revisit a couple you know bullet points there ain't shit going on at five in the morning, <laughs> friends. You ain't got to get a haircut. The wife's not going to ask you to go pick up a kid here or go to the grocery store or drop this off at the post office. Your boss isn't going to ask you to stay late because it's 5 a.m. And if you want to get workouts done, if you want to be consistent, look at my gym. The people that come in the morning are so much more consistent and last. Their membership lifetime is so much longer because they're just consistent. And now it doesn't, it's never fun to get up that early, but you'll never regret it when the workout's done and the sweat's all over your body and you feel good. So I do want to give you a kudos there. And I want to talk about you specifically overcoming a shoulder injury this year, having shoulder surgery, reconstructive 
a shoulder surgery, what you did, what you went through, what you did, and how you're able to get pulling a bow back before that Wasatch hunt for deer? Yeah, it was uh, this year. I had a couple conversations with you earlier in the year. It was it was a grind. It was probably well, no doubt, it was my toughest challenge ever in my life, physically of of being where I want to be come opening day um, just because of uh, like you said I had major shoulder surgery last December end of last December um, I, I fully uh, tore my labrum and and I had to go in and put some anchors in and put everything back in place and so I had that done late December uh, I had some goals of of being able to pull a certain amount of poundage come opening day and and not just that I mean the the bounce back of having my legs and cardio in, in the shape I wanted to be. It was hard to come back. I'm not a spring chicken anymore. You know, I'm uh, 40 years old this year. And so it gets harder and harder, but, um, yeah, it was, it was a grind. It was tough. Um, but really, really it just came down to being committed and dedicated to do it. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I had surgery, uh, I, I did a lot of research, talked to a lot of people. I mean, the main thing was you really had to, there was a certain time frame there that you just couldn't do anything and, and you had to take it easy and slow and, and not risk re-injury. I think we try and push back too hard sometimes and too fast. And this is one of those situations where I was told time and time again, look, doesn't matter how gung-ho you are, you just have to heal and you can't push it. Um, and so I would get to that point, you know, that I could push it. Uh, but for a while there, it was just slow and steady doing the things I was asked. It's so, you know, I, I'd go into physical therapy and, and I would laugh because the physical therapist was always so excited to see me because I actually did my homework. She told me, you know, there's so many people out there that don't follow what they're supposed to do. They don't do their home exercises. They don't do. And I was, you know, man, I had motive, you know, my yeah. motivation was to be pulling a bow. And, and so it kind of blew my mind that people don't follow follow the routine they're supposed to to get better because i was just but i guess in the end that's what it comes down to you got to have a reason you got to have a goal my goal was to be pulling 60 plus pounds uh you know to be on the the top of the mountain opening morning um you know with a heavy pack and uh man i accomplished it i went into the hunt i i didn't get to shoot as much with my hunting rig as on a normal year but by mid-july i was pulling 67 pounds um i was hitting the hills hard i was scouting i was hauling gear in uh, i fought a couple other injuries i called and talked to you about a, a hamstring injury i had trying to come back and just that's just from not being able to do as much and and trying to push back fast and hard and and nursed a few other injuries going into the season but um in the end i put on literally hundreds of miles this year i feel great now i'm still rehabbing the shoulder some i'm not 100 percent, but um did everything and anything i wanted to do this year and and it just all came down to to being committed to doing it having the drive and the passion and the motivation to do it and having a goal an end goal that's huge for me is having that goal you know that something that's driving you whether it's your kids or whether it's you want to you know pull a bow back or you want to shoot a big animal i mean having a specific goal you're working towards that's a huge thing for me so you can do it guys so young bucks listening up and the old bucks they're older than us i'm almost 40 is uh hey injuries are inevitable they're gonna happen if you're out there working hard towards your goals you're gonna ha- you're gonna face some adversity that's just life get used to it and be ready to overcome it you know and and no one's going to feel sorry for yourself, so definitely you shouldn't either. I think you did it in less than six months as far as you know, getting from the time you went under the knife to the time you took a bow into the opening day. That was less than six months, right? Yeah, it was just over six months to when I went hunting, but I was pulling a bow. I mean, I, I had a game plan. I, I picked up a therapy, an accu bow, you know, just and you can do it with any kind of a band or whatever, but I picked one up because I like the feel of putting a release on and hooking up to a bow and pulling. Then I transitioned to pulling my little kid's bow back and my wife's bow, and, and I kept – you know, last year I shot lighter poundage, so I, I kept my previous year's bow at 50 pounds. I just had this system, man. I, and when I finally graduated into my new RX-1, which was a 60 to 70 pound bow, so when I finally pulled it back, it was just, you know, it was huge success. It was a huge hurdle for me to overcome. And after that, man, I just didn't look back. So, um, yeah, it, 
it uh, before I was pulling legal hunting weight in five to six, probably five months. Um, I I was about six and a half seven months to get up to the poundage I actually hunted with. So having a job <clears throat> nine to five, forty plus hours a week. You're married, kids. You got to support your family. Family coming first. We don't talk about finances enough on here, but I'm not afraid to go into it. I've been very transparent that I have a meager salary, but uh, it's definitely sufficient for how disciplined I am with my finances. I don't feel like there's any limitations on when and where I go hunting. I've been smart with my money since for a long time. What are you doing? Because I know you hunt out of state quite a bit, and I know you work a ton. How are you juggling family finances and hunting? Like, do you have any like snapshots of like what you're doing or any tidbits to offer our listeners? Well, so, you know, to me, one of the biggest things is, and and you're right, I, I, my whole life, um, I've never had a lot, you know, and, uh, I just haven't, I grew up on a dairy farm where you worked ridiculous hours and 3 a.m. and and I watched my dad work 12 hours a day and I learned the ethics of hard work that's been one of the biggest things to me in my life probably to help me achieve any of my goals but uh so I never had a lot and I and I always had these aspirations to I was passionate and wanted to go hunt around the country and even around the world and uh you know so many guys that just watched their life pass by and they didn't do it and uh, I never, I've never had a ton, but I just set goals and, and I just, one of the biggest things I do is, is I start planning for hunts far in advance. Um, I, maybe I, sometimes I'm a little bit, uh, you know, some people ask, well, how can you afford to do that or whatever? But I'll, you know, like I, I just booked a caribou hunt for next fall, uh, and, and it's in the works. I'm working hard right now to put some money away for it. I have plans on how I'm going to pay for it, et cetera. But I, um, you know, I just, I plan in advance. I actually have a, a account set aside. That's, I call it my hobby account that, uh, you know, if I sell a little bit of my hunting gear, or I make a little extra money or whatever, I find that balance between taking care of my family and investing where I need to invest. But I put money away in my, my hunting hobby account that I call it. And, say I get a little bonus at work or whatever, or tax return, you know, I balance that out and, and a little bit goes towards my passion of hunting. And, um, like, like we've talked, family always comes first, but yeah, I just plan, plan ahead and have a little bit of a slush fund there that if an oppor- if a can't pass opportunity comes my way, I can at least look at it. Um, and then I, I build points in different States and there are some States out there you can, uh, you can kind of plan, you know, you, you can watch the point systems and the draws and you can specifically know, Hey, I'm going to throw in this year. I have enough points to draw so you can plan financially for that. Um, so it's just a, it's a juggling act, you know, I don't have a lot, but it's just a juggling act planning ahead. Um, having a little reserve just being willing to go for it too i mean so many guys sit and say oh man you're so lucky you get to go do this and that and that and i say why can't you you know we all can you just got to work at it you just got to work hard for it make the goal that you want to go on that hunt and make it happen and uh you know it just comes down to how how much how much drive and passion you have but um whether you whether you plan something two or three or four years out, it'll be here before you know it. So just plan ahead and start putting money towards it. And next thing you know, you find your, yourself on that that dream hunt you've always wanted to go on. Make it happen. Dude, definitely. If I wasn't a fitness archery guy, I think I'd be a financial planner for people because right. it all comes down to discipline. And discipline is like my launch pad in life. And I think I'll use myself an example, like a guy who, you know, basically – takes his money, any money that I get or my wife gets, like coming in, we're going to carve out 10%, give it to God. You can't outgive God. And I learned that lesson the hard way. I've been stingy in the past and haven't tithed. We talk about faith on this podcast, but I don't believe I, uh, you're doing yourself or anyone a favor if you don't tithe and give that 10% just straight 100%. up and just get, it's not yours anyways. And if, if you're truly not the CEO, then God is. And if he's your CEO, he's got it handled. Get that 10% out. But then the next 10%, 
I feel like you could shave 10% and put that away towards your hobby fund, as you called it, or whatever, your hunting fund. I don't think it would affect everything. If it would, then drop it to 5%. But if you did that with every check, every PayPal, every transaction, you you know, that money would add up fast. Uh, Alicia and I do a hybrid version of that Dave Ramsey deal. We don't have... We don't have a ton of debt, but we did when we first got married. Uh, Alicia had a car payment, uh, student loans. She wanted to go back to school. She had two different credit cards. And I, like I said, I'd been disciplined my whole life, so I didn't have any of those things. So we didn't even have the same checking <laughs> account when we first got married. And she was always basically bouncing checks or, or overdrawing, if you will, on her debit card. Till finally one day we just downloaded and listened together and and we burned the ships, man. We like literally combined our checking account and we started with the smallest debt and we weren't making much when we first got married. We lived in a 900 square foot house and we just started chipping away at the very lowest debt. And we dude, five years later we like had zero debt on credit cards. Her school loans were paid. Her nursing school was paid for cash and we were able to save up for a down payment on a bigger house. Like. It's crazy how you can tackle debt head on. Now, currently, we are, we don't have truck payments and all that kind of stuff. We pay cash for a lot of stuff, but I still have two mortgages. I have the house we live in, and then I have my hunting cabin. But that's really the it. Everything else is kind of we just take our checks, do our 10% tithe, and I do stash a little bit for hunting. And then we fill up envelopes and just for stuff that uh, could come up, you know. So, like, we have right. an envelope for vehicles when – when she need, needs new tires or if I need this, that, the other, brake parts, or I like to do a lot of that stuff myself. Right. The, it's in the envelope. We've been saving for it monthly even though it's maybe not an expense that comes up very often. And, and that's been a huge success. I think, I think people are getting the idea. I want to move on. Next subject, man, is I want to talk about your 2018 season. I want to get into elk hunting for sure. But first for my own, for my own deal, Matt, I want to shoot an antelope like you did in Montana. Holy <laughs> smokes. I'm not great at judging antelope, but that's definitely Pope and Young pushing Boone. What what happened there? Yeah, no, he's a he's a sweet antelope. Um, actually, actually, and, and I'm not a huge score guy, but he, he went just over 80 inches. Uh, stud antelope with a bow for sure, um, and uh, big old hooks on him. I uh, just a cool, cool looking buck. So yeah, I mean. You know, I've got kind of, I think, maybe the order of, of my passions and, and mule deer and elk are at the top. But over the last decade, I've I've, I've just kind of almost annually gone to Montana and with the archery antelope tag. And I'm not I'm not a sit in the ground blind kind of guy. So um, it, that's probably the most effective way to hunt out. But I love getting on the ground and playing playing cat mouse and spot and stock antelope. So um I've been super blessed and lucky and I've taken, um, some really nice bucks with my bow spot stock and, and, uh, but yeah, on that particular one, me and the owner Jay here, we, we traveled to Montana for kind of a little annual trip. He and I do to kind of talk about and plan, um, our year. And it's just a thing him and I do each year. We go antelope hunting. We usually have a white tail tag in our pocket as well and, and go up and, and, and just the two of us, you know, spend that time together. And we got up there. Um, it's a ranch I've hunted quite a bit, a huge place. I mean, and wide open. And, and what I've found is most people think they look at antelope terrain and especially in the plains of Montana and think, Oh, it's impossible to sneak up on them. But, uh, y'all after doing it for years and years and years for one, there's always more more terrain out there than you think just from first glance you know there's little draws and ditches and 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 even just the contour of the plains you can if you're determined to do it it can be done and uh, so on this particular one um they were on the tail end of the rut we we got there oh, i think it was late october this year um and we wanted to hurry and go because the gun season came in that next friday so we wanted to hunt with our bows and and before the gun guys started banging at them and we got up there uh i actually the first day i was there i got eyes on this particular buck and he just had those big hooks and just was a cool looking deer and or i mean an antelope and so uh, i think it was the next day i i uh spotted him and 
and a bunch of does kind of down in this flat and uh, um, a couple other little bucks around and they were still chasing around a little bit and doing a little bit of the rut thing it wasn't i think it was on the tail end but one of my strategies with antelope um because antelope let's face it if they had noses and a sense of smell that that they used really i i guess they have noses they have a sense of smell but they don't seem to pay attention to that so much it's their eyesight you got to beat so i really never pay that much attention to the wind on an antelope i don't i don't know that i've not really had many antelope blow out and bust me because of the wind so i kind of throw that aside and i goal number one is you can't let them see you their eyesight's incredible so i play this game especially during the rut with antelope i I just get as tight as I can, unseen, and I hang out. Uh, they move. Antelope just move. They're sporadic. They can move all day. They chase each other around, etc. So I play this cat and mouse game. I just I crawl. I get in a ditch or get in a brush, and I inch in. If it's 120 yards out or whatever, I get as close as I possibly can, unseen, and I wait. And, yeah, more often than not, they they go the other way or whatever but so many times i've had a buck end up in my lap or end up close enough to kill and if they bump off go a different direction i i readjust and i go at it again so um, i think it was my second second attempt on this group i crawled through some some foot and a half tall sagebrush and a little dip <clears throat> was able to get into about 100 yards um this this bigger buck that was with the does he uh, kind of ended up chasing a smaller buck running my way um, after a while. And what I find, if you're trying to mess with a bunch of does, it's impossible. But a lot of times these bucks will be on the outskirts running around and chasing each other off, and that's your opportunity to kill them. So um, he ended up chasing a, a smaller buck off and and walking back by, you know, ran past me and then was walking back by about 65 yards. Um, and... Uh, I was able to to make the shot and kill him, but and that's another thing I've really learned with spot and stock antelope. Maybe some people consider that shot unethical. I don't know, but oh, I doubt uh, it. I practice and trained for it all year, obviously as I know you do. But a long, long time ago, when I first had the bug to spot and stock hunt antelope, um, a friend of mine that had done it quite a bit said, "Dude, if you are are accurate and able to shoot sixty or seventy yards." you'll increase your odds drastically of killing a spot and stock antelope. So I took that to heart. I practiced, practice, practice, 60, 70, 80 yards, whatever. Um, and not too long ago, it's funny. I went and calculated my spot and stock antelope the last six or seven. I've killed spot and stock in the open country. And my average came out to be like 62 yards of yeah. my shot. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's, that's one thing I'd pass on. If you're going to try spot and stock antelope hunting, get really proficient with your bow at, at 65 yards 70 yards 60 yards have that be a comfortable shot to you that seems to be that threshold you know not that you can't kill them closer but that just kind of seems to be that threshold i can get routinely and get a shot off um on an antelope on the ground and so um but yeah it's it's uh they're fun they're fun to spot and stock you can and one thing i do i think different too is i just go out and I go all day long. <laughs> I just hit the ground and and from dark to dark, I just, you know, keep trying, keep trying, keep trying. And you stick with it. Eventually one ends up in your lap or it comes together. They're, they're the most unpredictable animals ever. They might run away from 400 yards or they might run over and see what you are. You know, you just, but if you keep at it and get on the ground and mix it up with them, um, you just don't know. It'll, it'll eventually come together. And that's kind of what I do. So. That's pretty cool. I think I've only killed a handful of antelope. Um, I have killed one every time I've gone out antelope hunting, you know, dedicated a week to it. I've had success, but um, I'd say all my ground blind shots are probably right around that 40-yard range. And then all my spot and stock, I've done a couple, were between 60 and 70. So our notes line out. What time of year were you hunting antelope this year? Uh, it was... Uh, it was the first of October, I believe, um, which not ideal, I don't think. But I actually have killed several um, that late in the season. We just hadn't, you know, Montana opens early, and uh, we just hadn't got up there. And uh, I, you know, the rut kind of coincides with the elk rut, which you know where you and I want to be at that time. So <laughs> um, it was kind of on the tail end of the rut. Um, I'm just looking here at my picture. I think it was early early october when i was there because the rifle 
the antelope rifle season. Um, no, I killed him on the last day of September. So yeah, um, that, that very end of September, first of October. That's cool, man. I love it. So let's graduate over to elk, man. It seems like you've killed a lot of Wyoming bulls in your days, but generally speaking, what is the time frames that you like elk hunting? What do you, you, what's your historical dates that you go and where are the places that you've gone to? Um, yeah, I kind of, it's kind of dictated by what state I'm hunting, some by choice and others by, you know, here in Utah, it's different. Um, our archery hunting seasons are some of the toughest anywhere because, and I'm hoping Utah will change it. There's some, they're looking at it, but archery hunts, even limited entry archery hunts in Utah, the season ends, um, really early. Last time I drew a big bull tag in Utah in, uh, 2014 14 or 15 14 i believe um the hunt ended on september 12th that was the last day or yeah september 12th and uh you know that can be tough depending on the year um that's kind of the time frame around the 8th or 9th or 10th that i really like to start hunting kind of the the first week the pre-rut i call it or whatever i think that's one of the best times to kill a big bull but um you know our elk hunting season in utah opens middle of august so it's totally different ball game then than it is middle of september so i've had that experience of, of trying to hunt big bulls um from middle of august um and then uh you know if i'm going to wyoming i usually like to go around that time frame i just talked about the eighth or ninth or the tenth and hunt through um and it, and it depends on the weather obviously and and different factors but i i kind of like that early part of the rut before the elk have really herded up you know they're still kind of figuring out the pecking order and chasing each other around and and because uh, once those big bulls get with the herds you know it's tougher to kill one of them it really is and and you can do it but the tactics change a little bit so i've hunted everything from middle of august to where they're straight up bachelor herds some of them still in velvet i'm i'm hunting them more like a, a mule deer um all the way through you know about the third week of september a couple times in montana uh, i've hunted them that later week and and had some success so it just i've hunted them for several different weeks but my favorite i think is that around the i'd say around the eight through the 17th or 18th you know that 10-day stretch right there traditionally if i was to say a 10-day stretch that would be it gotcha so in those dates that you just mentioned where what is your go-to game plan are you just one of those guys that's going to slip in in transition are you waiting for them to bed are you i mean are you more of a spot and stock guy or intercept vocalizations where does that come in like what do you think historically speaking has been best for you you know i was thinking about that actually this morning um i really i just really believe with any kind of hunting elk mule deer antelope whatever the more tricks you have in your bag the better and so i think one of the keys to being successful as an elk hunter is your ability to adapt and be versatile um, my favorite way to hunt elk is calling them in i you know but and we've all had those dream days of being out there where the where the woods are just blowing up and and elk are screaming and they're responding to your calls and running you over and those kind of scenarios but that's not how it usually goes down so um you know i i'm a I, I i call i use a call a lot early on just as a locator um i think one of the keys is is really being able to read the elk as they're responding to you and 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 uh you know kind of gauge what their reaction is and and what their interest level is and play off that but um i do all kinds man i've killed elk I've killed a lot of elk calling them in and, and self-calling. I've killed a lot of my bulls just calling for myself, which is a, a little bit different, too, than having someone help you. Um, and then I've killed elk catching them transitioning from feeding areas to bedding areas. I've, I've dogged herds all day and just hung around the outskirts like like we talked about for antelope. If they're not really responsive or the big bulls have already herded up, that's that's what I do. I get as tight as I can and, and just kind of stay with them without them getting my wind. Um 
like this last hunt this year to Wyoming, the elk were, it was hot, but the elk were pretty vocal in the morning. So, um, I cover generally elk hunting. I cover a lot of ground. Uh, that's one of the reasons I, I train and stay in shape. I, I just like to hunt and cover ground and, and, you know, I'll, I'll call into a Canyon glass of Canyon. If, if I get something responsive, I'll work on him. If not, I'm boom to the next drainage and, and Kip and I, my hunting partner, well, that's how we hunted in Wyoming this year. It was just trying to find active elk or trying to find elk that wanted to play and just covering ground and going, 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 going until you find, find one that wants to, wants to play with you, you know? So, um, and then when they shut up, uh, I, I'm a big advocate of hunting all day. Um, whether, you know, you can't always call all day, but, um, when they shut up, I pay attention to where you can hear the herd, you know, you can hear them talking, you're playing with them. And then all of a sudden you can tell they're bedding up, they're shutting up. So I treat at that point, midday, I'll, uh, slip around. I'll wait till the thermals change. I'll get them right. And I'll slip in on the herd and I'll hang tight. Um, good things happen when you're in on them and, and I don't go back to camp. I just don't. I, I, if I can't find any elk or I don't have anything to play on, I find a good likely trail or a, a wallow or something and I crawl up under a tree and hang out. But, um, it just, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I know it maybe sounds a little cliche, but, but, um, law of averages man the more time you spend out there in good situations the higher probability something's going to happen for you and so when i get the opportunity to go hunting I, I try to make the best of it all day every day and and uh um i use so many different tactics for elk like i said from calling to spotting stock to just getting tight on a herd and hanging out to literally trying to almost run with the herd and, and keep up with them, you know, which can be tough to do. So, yeah. um, but, um, it just gotta be able to read the animals and, and adapt in my opinion. That's what makes the best elk hunters. You, you can't go out there thinking you're just gonna do a sexy cow call and call them in every time. Cause it doesn't work, you know? Yeah. I hear you. I I've been watching quite a bit of these YouTube series coming out lately on elk. Um, name dropping like destination elk and the born and raised uh i've tried to watch as many of those as i can and they've been so awesome to watch good job to all those guys but what it's done for me is solidified the fact that i prefer to hunt by myself at the end of the day i've watched they, uh, groups of three to six to eight guys going out for elk and they're even backpacking hunting but so much standing around and so much like I mean, yes, you get camaraderie and it's fun, I do think. But at the end of the day, I'm not into having fun, man. I'm into killing an elk. That's, I'm having fun when my hands are bloody and I know that I did what I set out to do. And I'll sacrifice a lot to make that happen. So my point is, is at the end of the day, man, I'm a solo elk hunter, true and true. Like that's what I prefer. My decision-making is so fast. The instincts is what i'm running off of and there's no hesitation right right are you and that's what are you a solo elk hunter you know i would say for the most part yeah that's what Um, i thought i i love i love hunting and you did a podcast with with my elk hunting mentor mike lowry yes um he's the one guy that i've just him and i get together in the elk woods and it just seems to go down every time you know um for years we had a hundred percent success together on filling our elk tags and we just worked well together you know and and he taught me how to elk hunt so that that's something really special to me um and and last few years i've I've taken my Mueller hunting partner on a couple elk hunts and he's a go-getter and we've, we, we split up and we do our thing and we kill elk. And this year I called the bull in for him, um, first morning and he was with me behind me filming as I killed my bull this year. Um, but all in all, most of my bulls have killed on my own. I love, like you said, I love it being on me. I love making those because with elk hunting, a lot of times you can't get caught standing around with your hands in your pocket or your pants down. Um, you got to be decisive. You got to take action. It can go down any second, any time. It can turn from nothing to something in an instant. And so um, I think a lot of that goes out the window if you have a group of guys um, because 
you know, you're not the sole decision maker or whatever. Um, so even when I do go elk hunting, other than with Lowry, um, even if I do have someone with me, I kind of treat it like I'm solo. I, I make the calls. I move when I want to move. I just go for it. Um, because, uh, I think that's one of the keys to being successful because, uh, you gotta, you gotta be decisive. You gotta take action. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a, for the most part, I'm a solo guy, but I can't say that I don't absolutely love being in the elk woods with, um, you know, friends at times. And, and like I said, my elk hunting mentor, mentor Lowry is, man, I hold those, those chances really dear to me when I get to spend time in the woods with him. Yeah. That guy's pure gold. Thanks for hooking that up, man. That's one of my favorite podcasts I've ever done. Just listening to a guy, go back and find that one with Mike Lowry guys. If you haven't heard that one, that's literally one of my favorites. You're not going to hear from that many guys that like, Oh yeah, I hunted when the very first archery compound bow came out i hunted you know it's just mind-blowing how much elk knowledge that guy has and that was definitely i appreciate that one all right matt well when it comes to elk and it comes to packing out elk we don't talk about this enough on this podcast but i want to hear your like what's your go-to method on packing elk out meat wise breaking them down um kind of like some good rule of thumb for those that once they finally get success how do they manage that and get the meat take the meat care because you do travel for your elk hunting what's your kind of what's your protocol out there in the mountains right well again that you know that that can sure vary depending on depending on the weather and where you're hunting um utah we got some crazy early seasons and it can be 90 degrees and so that's you know you got to be you got to be on it fast and have enough help to get it out really quick or it's going to spoil but on a traditional elk hunt in september um my method is this, uh, and, and looking back, like I said, I've been on a lot of elk on the ground by myself and you got, you got no choice, but to just get it done. You can't go out for help or whatever. You're in situations where you just gotta, you gotta take care of business and, and that can be hard to do. I'm not a big dude, you know, I'm five, seven, 155 pounds. So manhandling a, a seven or 800 pound bull elk on the ground can be just, be a chore but number one i'm i'm a huge i'm a huge advocate of uh, i love getting good field photos i think if you looked at some of my pictures and stuff you know that's important to me but not at the expense of the animal so you know i i do my thing i i get the animal in a position to try and get some good pictures because those memories just i love them i love having them and love sharing them with my friends and stuff um but then i get to work i i don't gut the animal uh i you know, I, I skin and quarter, um, get the, the quarters off the ground, either hung or on a log or whatever, as quick as I can. I mean, elk are huge animals. And if it's warm at all, you got to get them split open. You know, if you, if you don't get, especially that front end of an elk, if you don't get it opened up and aired out quick, even if it's only a few hours, they can spoil. So that's, that's number one. I, I start, start skinning and, and get them split open, get the quarters open or off. Um, Honestly, if I'm close, uh, if I'm not way back in and it's not that bag of a ha- bad of a haul, I don't debone them because I, I like hanging and aging my meat. It keeps cleaner. It, it's easier to, to handle and manage on that aspect, um, on the bone. If I'm, if I'm miles back in somewhere or whatever, obviously, um, I'm going to, I'm going to take, take them apart as much as possible and, and eliminate any weight i possibly can but if i'm somewhere where it's not that bad of a pack out a lot of times and and i've got time um to make two or three or four trips um i'll leave them on the bone uh, because i i think i end up with the finished product you know that's 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 important to me having good meat in the freezer and and it's all about how you take care of it so um but in scenarios like wyoming this year you know i killed my bull late evening uh, it was cool. It was going to be cold that night. Um, cold enough anyways. And so, uh, we, we had a long ways to go. There was going to be an easier way to come in in the morning and pack him out. So what I did is, is we quartered him. It was Kip and I, we were together on him and we quartered him. We hung him in a tree. I think I posted a picture of, of the quarters and back straps and stuff in a tree. Um, you know, kind of made a joke about it. This is my, my butcher shop, but, um, hung him in a tree, let him set up, let him air out overnight. We were in there first, first thing in the morning. Um, you know, it was one of those days where as soon as it warms up, the flies start getting on them. But at night and early in the morning, there was no flies of that to deal with. So, um, we got in there early, 
Uh, it wasn't going to be that bad of a pack out downhill. So we put full quarters in game bags. Uh, the two of us took him out in two loads, um, you know, which, which is pretty good. So, um, Dang, but yeah, but yeah, I mean, it just, it just depends on the scenario, but, but number one, get them apart as quick as you can and get them hung and aired out, whether it's warm or cool or whatever, even if it's cold, you let an animal lay on the ground all night with that thick hide and the, and, and the big front end, they'll spoil, you'll spoil a front quarter or a front shoulder. If, even if it's 30 degrees outside. So, yeah, you know that's that's kind of my process um i keep them as clean as possible i get them in gate bags as quick as possible keep the fly blow off them um and then you know like i said we travel uh, across state a lot um i get them chilled off at night and and for traveling home i try and get them in in some big coolers and and get them home and take care of them if i can i like to age them for a good week if it's cold enough but sometimes that's not doable so Okay, a couple questions. First one is when you got that elk laying there, you already got your photos, and it's time to get to work. You probably zip them along the spine all the way up the neck. Do you take the rear quarter off first, or do you like to work the, sh- uh, the shoulder? Like, which do you, where do you start? I usually, I usually take the rear quarter off first. I don't know. That's just how I've always done it. Um, I'll, I'll generally take the rear quarters off, and... Um, especially if I'm by myself, you know, it's just easier for me to work on the rear end and, and cause to get the, the front shoulders, you have to roll the, the whole elk over. And, and so it's easier for me to work on the rear end. And, and once I get, get the rear end taken apart and the back straps off, um, then I can roll them around and get those front shoulders popped off. And if it's a good enough bull, I might be taking his cape as well. So yeah, that's true. For me, it seems like I'm always killing them and it's hot. So I've always ran them up the neck, get the air in there right away, kind of get that opened up and take that front shoulder off. And once that front shoulder's off, then I can kind of get the back strap out nice, uh, real clean and get all that. And then I hit the rear quarter and then get the tenderloins, then go back, pull that neck meat off as long as it's been airing out or I'll get the neck meat off in one big, big chunk. Try to get all the neck meat in one chunk. The more meat you can leave, I think you alluded to this, the, the less you mess with cutting into small pieces, the better your meat will be for the long term. And I Less waste. Yeah, I generally age my elk for at least a week. What's your uh, – that was my second question is how long do you like to get your meat hanging on the bone there? Yeah, I, I mean I preferably a full week to even 10 days if, if I – you know, if I can. Yeah. Um, so there's been scenarios where, you know, I mean, the, this year in Wyoming, it got hot and we had some meat in camp and, and we had to take them apart a little more than we wanted to get them in some coolers on some ice or whatever to save them. So, um, so she, you know, Kip killed his bull early in the week and we were trying to keep it good throughout the week and I was still hunting. So, um, but yeah, ideally I leave them as big in pieces as I can and even if I even if I bone bone them off the hind quarter, I mean I just make one cut basically and, and take the bone out and leave it in the biggest biggest chunk. I don't piece it out at all. You know, the bigger chunk you have less waste, you have less chance of getting things dirty and and so I live in the biggest chunk possible and, and uh, try and age it if I can for seven to ten days. It's good stuff. As healthy as it gets. Well, here's where we're going to end, Matt. This is like the this could be a really long answer or short, but all right. The arrow has been released. You knowing you, you're a phenomenal archer. Let's just assume that it was a good shot. What's kind of your protocol on what exactly, in as much detail as possible, happens right after the shot? Yeah. So hopefully, hopefully, uh, <laughs> hopefully the shot went as planned. And a lot of, a lot of my elk shots are pretty close, especially when you're, when you're calling in for yourself. Um, and man, a lot of my elk I've watched go down inside, which is an awesome feeling. Um, but in scenarios where it's not, um, you know, I, I try to focus on when I make the shot, I try and pay real close attention to what that animal does and where he goes as he runs off and really get a look at exactly where I hit him. Things happen in the blink of an eye. And so, and I deal with it all the time. So, so more often than not, that shot isn't exactly where you thought it was, or, you know, it, it just happens in a blink eye. The elk was maybe a little different angle or whatever. So, um, I, uh, <clears throat> you know, I watch the shot, watch the elk leave, watch his reaction. Um, ideally my first thing I do is I go to my arrow, um, 
go to right where I hit him and uh, examine the arrow and blood. Um, and then I, I make a determination on what I shot, think the shot was. And then I always err on the side of caution. Um, but if I think I absolutely double lung smoked him and the blood indicates that and the arrow indicates that, I'll still wait 45 minutes to an hour just unless I saw him go down. Just because I've seen one lung shot elk or or lung liver shot elk get up and take off i've seen it too many times so um if i think i absolutely smoked him i'll still give it a good solid hour after the blood trail and the arrow confirm that anything aside from that if i think if i think it's it's not the perfect shot and and the you know you can tell a lot from the arrow on the blood trail for sure especially when you've been on hundreds of them like i have if i think that there's any chance that that bull's just not dead in a matter of seconds or i don't hear him crash it's just really really air on the side of caution um and then i always i one thing i love about being alone when i'm on a blood trail i'm hunting you know i'm quiet i'm slow i'm methodic i'm glassing i'm not just hopping on the blood trail and and running for it and and cruising along a blood trail i've just seen too many scenarios where the animal gets up or whatever so i give it plenty of time um, I get on the blood trail. I methodically work it out. I don't just start grid searching and looking and walking ahead trying to figure out if I can see him. I just am super slow and methodical about it because if he's still alive, I'm going to slip in and I'm going to kill him. You know, and he's so I, I I think that's where one place a lot of guys make mistakes. Um, a lot of animals are lost because of how people track them after they're hit. Um, I see it all the time. Um, truth is, Dan, if you shoot an animal, whether it's one lung or whether it's liver or whether it's a, a straight gut shot, you know, not, not something we like to see or do, but it, it happens. If you play the tracking job right more often than not, you'll recover that animal. But you have to know and understand what to do. And if you're in doubt, back out and give it plenty of time Um you know, I get calls all the time because I've, I've had so much experience with it. I've had multiple calls this year of guys calling me on the phone and saying, dude, I just hit this elk. Uh, here's what my arrow looks like. Here's what I think. And, and uh, you know, and getting my advice on how they should should take it or what they should do. And, and uh, um, like I said, if you have questions, if you don't just absolutely know you smoke that bull, um really 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 err on the side of caution because once you bump them out of that initial bed odds of recovery go way 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 down so like that's gold information folks so uh i couldn't agree i mean i just agree with everything you say there i don't like tracking with a with a group of people that's rarely been a good experience i've tracked a lot with my dad and uh he's always been really good as far as switching roles like if he's the shooter then I'm going to be out in front, but he's not going to be far behind and he's not, we're not going to let more than five yards apart, but he's going to stand at last blood. You know, he's a, he's a little bit more of an emotional hunter. So I want him kind of just doing his part and let me look, I'm logical. I'm not emotional about it. We'll, I'll find the best track and you don't need guys fanned out ruining the, the sign ahead. As far as going solo, I think you're dead right. As far as it's probably best to hunt your way to that animal and take your time it's only one person making noise it's your judgment you're deciding what the wind's doing what the terrain features are and where you think that elk expired case in point my last day in nevada this year i shot this bull and i thought i made an absolute perfect shot 70 yards broadside looking away had time to range him had a single pin slid it down to 70 had a great break and the bull runs 80 yards and stops and he sits at this like little cattle fence for like 20 minutes with like 25 cows all around him and they all know something's up and i finally got as close as i could and i pull up my binos and i see the arrow is a literally mad about two inches too low i I didn't i don't know i just shot low so i ended up sticking him again um kind of a long range shot just trying to get another arrow in him and he went up over the hill and then my i had a buddy who was a cameraman and he really wanted to follow me and film me and i just I remember having this conversation saying, if we're going to get this bull recovered, it's not going to be us together. Um, you, and so I made him go about a mile away on the highest hill, get his spotter out, 
And I said, I'm going to track this bull down and get another shot. If you get any footage, it'll be through the spot and scope. And that's, that's what happened. It took me quite a few hours to finally find him. He went almost a mile and I ended up making that last shot a good one. But, uh, I'm telling you, it's it's better to go solo, man. These yeah, really, for sure, hundred percent. This is just the truth. This is between two guys who've hunted a lot, and you've killed a ton of animals with a bow. So this is just good experience. I get a lot of emails from guys every season telling me about the the horror, you know, the horrors of wounding an elk and not being able to find it. And so I just wanted to touch on this topic with someone like you, who's tipped over a lot of bulls, been on a lot of blood trails seen a lot of different scenarios. My last question, based off what you just said, is that one lung slash one lung liver shot. Let's just say you know right away you get your arrow, or maybe the arrow is stuck in a shoulder, but you see that darker blood. What kind of time frame and what kind of distance would you suggest that elk could go? What should the, What's the protocol there on elk? Well... You know, there's there's one other factor that I consider, and that's weather and, and daylight. So I don't. Last thing I want is an elk to spoil. So you're always, but but you don't want to bump them either. You know, so that's that's always one question I ask myself. But um, you know, if I if I'm certain it's a, I've seen liver shot, one lung liver shot elk die as quick as 30, 20, 30 minutes. I've seen them die really quick. It really depends on exactly where you hit. Um, but I've also seen them live for hours. Um, and again, if the, to me, you hit a, you hit an elk like that liver lung anywhere in the chest cavity. If you don't push him or bump him, he's going to go lay down within, within a few hundred yards. He is, it just, they're sick. They're hurt. They start walking, start going uphill or any terrain. They're going to lay down within a matter of a few hundred yards. In my experience, rarely are they just going to, um, go, 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 go like they will on a muscle hit. You know, you whack one in the shoulder or or a muscle hit or whatever. They're just going to keep going. They're just going to line out and go, 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 go. But you hit one in the body cavity, in the lung or liver, they're going to go lay down pretty quick. Um, and so the goal there is don't bump them, give it as much time as you possibly can, whether you wait all day or whether it's, just, you know, um, I hate to say back out overnight on that hit because if it's hot, the elk will spoil. But whether you wait six hours or eight hours, you know, you hit them in the morning, give them as much time as possible and then hunt your way in. They're going to be laying there even if they're not dead. I've had it personally happen. They're not dead. And, and, you know, this is just reality. Maybe people don't like to hear this, but they're still there. They're still alive. You hunt your way in. At least you get the longer you give them, even if they're alive, they get sick. They get sick, they get weak. The odds of slipping in on them and shooting them again go way up. So I've, I've personally done it on a, a big bull here in Utah years ago. I and he came out. I called him in. I was alone down in this hole. He he uh, arranged the tree that he was coming by, and I at 50 yards. And 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 when I got drawn and I took the shot, he had kind of slightly quartered away from me, and he ended up being at 55, and I hit a little bit low. I just a few inches low. Um, he turned and ran downhill. Um, you know, I was down in a hole. I was just on my own. I was exhausted already. It had been a long, brutal hunt. And I literally, Dan, I waited. That was in the morning. I waited all day till about 4 in the afternoon. I wanted to give myself a couple hours. I started hunting in on him just slow slow methodical arrow knocked in my socks type thing i slipped in on him he was in his bed he was laying there he'd lift his head up a little bit back down he was sick you know um his senses were not what they would normally be but he was still plenty enough alive to jump up and run off so i was able to slip in on him in on him and kill him if i would have rushed that track job even 30 minutes or an hour, I would have blown that elk out of the country. But waiting six or seven hours, he'd only gone a few hundred yards. I knew he would not go too far. He'd laid down. He'd got sick. It just increased the odds of me being able to slip in and finish off the job. So that's how I handle that scenario. I give it as long as I can. I hunt my way in. I go in expecting that I might have to finish that elk off with another arrow. Um, sometimes they're dead. Sometimes they're not. And, and that's how I personally treat it and, and would probably recommend to do it. Dude, that's, that is such good information. I will finish with this story. 
it just you made me think of it and so similar to yours so i'm not sure what year it was not that long ago a couple years ago um i think that morning right at daybreak i kind of knew where this herd of elk were crossing i got in between them all the cows went to my right and i just happened to pick the one trail that the bull the herd bull came up he came up to about seven yards from me and i got stuck with uh not able to draw because he he just was there and he started feeding in front of me oh gosh for about a minute and then when he turned his head i pulled my bow back and he just he must have heard the sound and he bolted and uh, i stopped him shot at 10 yards and my arrow hit a twig and deflected didn't hit him thank goodness but just arrow deflect i kind of regrouped went over around the other side of the mountain fast forward called the bull in shot him 20 25 yard shot passed through double lung went over took some photos broke the bull down hiked the bull up to the main ridge did like four trips then i ferried it from there all the way to my dirt bike got a hold of my dad my dad met up with me and we loaded all the meat on the dirt bikes and and um people aren't going to believe this but it was only four o'clock and i was like I had two tags, and I that morning I'd glassed another herd bull across the canyon, and I just told my dad, "Hey, go ahead." My dad doesn't like to hunt till dark, by the <laughs> way. So, and I do. So I was like, "Hey, go ahead and start with the first loadout. I'll meet you at camp tonight. I'm gonna go check on this other bull, see if I can prime the pump for tomorrow. Just get them kind of worked up, and then get them ready for tomorrow. I like to do that sometimes. And so I went over to that other side of the canyon, and I introduced myself, and got this bull ripping pretty good. Got his cows even talking. And next thing I know, the bull leaves his cows and he's coming towards me. And I'm like, oh, crap. I need to, like, start hiking out. It's getting dark quick. And so I started hiking out. And this bull is, like, following me. And so, of course, I start bugling back. Long story short, as I, this, I called this bull in. I shot him at 20 yards. I stopped him broadside. He came uphill to kind of get the dominant ground. I had the wind, and I used the exact same arrow. I killed a bull a few hours ago, shot him. He bolted, and I cow called and stopped him about 80 yards. And I knew right then and there, I was like, man, I should have waited to stop him a couple more yards you know, later. But I, I, I jumped the gun, and so I felt like I hit one lung one and liver. And I just knew that from the shot. Well, the bull stops at 80 yards, and I throw my glass up, and I watch him for about four or five minutes stand still, and tell I could not see him anymore because of daylight. And I was in the dark timber. So last I saw him, he was standing 80 yards, but he was sick. He was hurt. And what I did was I backed out. I brought all the rest of the meat home to camp, got my dad, and we turned around and came back. That took about five or six hours. And when we went back to where I saw him last, we went over there and he wasn't there. And we followed a very poor blood trail and his tracks. And about 80 yards from where I saw him last, he laid down and died. And it was truly a one lung liver shot. And he, it's exactly what you said. He didn't go 200 yards. If I had bumped him, he could have gone God knows how far. And he, if you just know what to do. And, and then we had to go back that night because I was worried about the meat spoiling. And right. so he was already pretty stiff when we got there. And we got that, that cape off real quick and saved all the meat. So pretty interesting to hear you say the same thing. So, man, it's fun comparing notes with you, man. Uh, let's tell guys where they can follow you on Instagram and uh, what you got going on at Grim Reaper for 2019 right right yeah so yeah i'm, I'm on instagram um matt.s.bateman um and uh grim raper wise we uh we you know we've been working hard here we've got we've we've introduced over the last couple of years an awesome line of fixed blades which you're shooting we also have a variety of mechanicals um we're adding several new pieces to the line this year, which we'll be launching here in, in about four or five weeks at ATA show. Um, you know, nothing, nothing drastic, but, but a couple new hybrid models, um, a couple new little mechanical models, a couple grain weights and new fixed blade. Um, so we just have a lot going on. We're just going to continue to add to our line. We're going to continue to be made in America. We're going to continue to do our thing as, as one of the only independently owned companies left in this industry. Um, take a look at us, you know, not our, we just 
we just don't have great products, we're also a good company to, to back our stuff up and have the knowledge and experience to share with our customers and help direct you in the right direction. We truly have a broadhead that'll fit pretty much any anybody or any scenario, whether you're a diehard fixed blade guy like like you, Dan, or whether you, you'd like to shoot a mechanical like I personally do, we've got something that'll fit everyone. So check us out, www.grimreaperbroadheads.com, or you can look us up on Instagram or, or Facebook as well. So, Man, it's been so good talking to you. I appreciate your time. I know you're busy, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing you probably next month at ATA. And in the meantime, just keep doing what you're doing, man. I love your hustle. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate it, man. Fun to talk to you, and, and we'll, uh, we'll catch up soon. All right. Take care, bro. Take care.